This is They Create Worlds, Episode 2. You talk to whom? Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff Dom, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Smith. Hello. In our previous episode, we said that we would start going into how Alex does his interviews and all sorts of aspects of this. I've uh, heard bits and pieces of his interview process, a little bit of how he finds people, a little bit of what he does in the interview, but never really went in-depth as to what his entire process is. So I guess the real place to start with this, Alex, is why are you interviewing people? And pretty much, wouldn't as most people would think, hasn't it already been done? I mean, especially since about the year 2000, gaming has really come off in the media and you have nerd culture and the internet. There's a lot of interviews out there. There's a lot of people interviewing developers, interviewing game makers, interviewing companies. There used to be entire stations dedicated to it until they moved more online. Half of YouTube is about gaming or in some form or another. Well, has it been done before? Really, the answer is yes and no. Obviously, there have been a lot of interviews conducted. Some developers have been interviewed multiple times by different people, and we have a lot greater understanding of the thought process that went into the creation of some of these games than we did, say, 15 years ago when this kind of interviewing was not nearly as common. A couple of points on that. First is that a lot of these interviews are done by journalists or by game enthusiasts, and so they tend to focus on the areas that particularly interest them. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that, because with that kind of interview, you're generally transmitting it to an audience of like-minded gamers, and you need to create something that is going to be interesting to them, of course. And so that's the exact right way to do it, if you're a journalist or an enthusiast. So... Sometimes, however, this means that they do miss some of the little details and little connective tissues about how these games were made or how these developers interacted with their companies and other people at their companies. So there's always room to do more interviewing from a historical perspective. What you're saying there is that you come to the interviews from a more historical perspective, trying to be as all-encompassing as you can in order to get as much detail and to create an entire comprehensive story of whatever the subject is, as opposed to what most people are doing, which is, hey, how'd you come up with this idea so that I can make the next great game? Or how'd you make this company great so that I can make my own video game company? Well, I mean, the interviews aren't just about, you know, I want to make the next big game or I want to make the next big company. The interviews are often done by journalists who are very interested in getting to the heart of what happened because they want to share that information. It's just that they're going to be beholden to their target demographic. For instance, Retro Gamer is an absolutely wonderful publication, British magazine. I love it to death. Can't say enough mm -hmm. nice things about it. But the audience that they target 
is a retro game enthusiast crowd that played these 8 and 16 and even sometimes 32-bit games when they were younger and want to relive those classic games. And so they're very focused on how did you make my favorite game? How did this game come together? How did you come up with this cool feature? All very important stuff to document, extremely important. But they're not mm -hmm. going to get into the nuts and bolts necessarily of some of the corporate stuff going on or some of the business stuff going on just because that's not what that target demographic is there to read about, which is perfectly valid. Now, certainly I'm not the only historian interviewing people. There are plenty of people out there interviewing from a historical perspective, so I don't claim to be unique in that respect. All I'm saying is that when I do interview somebody that has been interviewed a few times before, I'm usually trying to find a different angle than what has already been reported in other interviews just to create a larger picture of what happened. So when we get into more detail on that, when you are interviewing people, what is it that you're looking for? What are sort of the standard topics you're trying to bring out of them that you feel that the majority of other interviewers aren't covering? It's really about the relationships, I think. Now, first of all, I, I should backtrack and say that so far I haven't really interviewed all that many developers. The reason being that there have been so many interviews with developers in the past, as we've just said. Now, the books that I'm writing are going to be very, very focused on developers as well. I mean, the book is going to be under the same umbrella heading of They Create Worlds, and the they, in this instance, in the instance of the blog that I'm writing, the they is the game companies and game creators and then the journalists and historians that have covered their history. But when it comes to the books, the they and They Create Worlds is going to be the game developers and the game companies and the game publishers and as we sort of talked about in the first podcast how you have this constant tension kind of between game creators and game publishers and it's through this natural tension that you get successful product and successful game companies so to this point i've mostly focused actually on interviewing executives at gaming companies now some of these executives have been game creators themselves as well for instance engineers at coin-op companies that have been involved in game development but the focus has still been on the creation of these companies by the people that either founded the companies or led the companies later on or were involved in the sales and marketing side of the company because I feel that part of the story has been largely underrepresented in the histories that have been done so far. There's been the focus on the game creators and on the games, and that's a very valid focus and a very justified focus. That's what people want to hear about, and that's what I'm going to write about as well. But I do want to bring in that other side of company creation and the way these people met each other and interacted with each other and uh, created the companies that actually brought us these games. Sort of the business, the people aspect of it, not just focusing purely on, hey, here's how I made the game. Here's how I met up with Bob. Me and Bob had this great idea for whatever. Me and Bob met up with Joe. Joe's was really good with business. And together, me, Bob, and Joe 
they were able to form Great Company B, and Great Company B went on to produce all this other stuff, but there's a natural story and dynamic there. You sort of see that with with people who, after, say, Steve, when Steve Jobs died, there were a book, two movies that were made about him and his life, and there's a lot more to these people than just, hey, I developed the game. They cre- they are human with flaws, with strengths, with weaknesses. Sure. And the other thing is, I mean, those founding stories do get told all the time. The part of the company story that tends to get lost, though, is the part after the company gets big. Then there seems to reach a certain point in a lot of narratives where a company like an Electronic Arts or an Activision stops being the little scrappy newcomer and becomes the big corporate powerhouse, and then the story becomes developers interacting with these kind of monolithic, faceless publishers. And you kind of get this idea that these companies are big, they've always been big, they always will be big, and there's no story there anymore. They're just kind of faceless behemoths. And, you know, there tends to be this tendency to always go back to the little guy again. It's kind of cyclical. It's like, well, we've introduced this company, and then they got big, and now we don't really need to deal with them anymore, except when the next plucky developer, you know, has a publishing contract with them or whatnot. We like the little guy. We like the story of David versus Goliath. We want to see the little guy triumphs over the big thing because we can most identify with the little guy. But there's still a lot of value, from what I, if I'm understanding you correctly, to after the company has become a medium to big business, there's still a lot of development, heart, and things going on there that are really integral to continue to be a successful company. That's why EA is still around. That's why Activision is still around. It's because they're still able to maintain some sort of balance between creating and running a business. Absolutely. And that isn't to say that publishers don't sometimes throw their weight around in very negative ways. Obviously, part of the reason that the David and Goliath story does appeal so universally in just the way you say is that there are a lot of Goliaths that have stomped on a lot of Davids. So it's not about excusing the publisher. When Electronic Arts decides to implement initiatives like their Project $10 DLC passes that gets the public to vote them two years running, the worst company in America in consumerist polls, over mm-hmm. banks that cheated people out of their life savings and cigarette companies that literally kill them. Obviously, there's something going on there, and EA is doing something that is not necessarily resonating with the public. And you've got to cover that side of it, too. It's not about just being apologists to big business. But big businesses, just like small businesses, are made up of people and Most of those people are trying to do a good job and trying to do right by somebody. Now, sometimes they lose sight of who that somebody is. Sometimes they decide that as long as they're doing right by their shareholders, they don't need to listen to their customers anymore. And then Mm -hmm. things get out of whack. But, you know, these are people, good people, bad people, competent people, incompetent People. people, just like anyone else. And I think it's important to 
speak to the people that keep these companies going as well as the people that make the games that also keep these companies going. And so there's definitely a gap there in terms of coverage. CEOs of major companies tend to be interviewed for historical retrospectives when they agree to grant interviews. And some of the sales and marketing people at the console companies tend to always be in high demand because with a console company, they're bringing out a new product every five to seven years. So that wheel's always turning. Someone who's a Goliath in generation one could be a David in generation two, and then constantly you have this wheel of fortune raising some up and lowering some down. And so the story kind of stays interesting enough that people want to hear all about it. But these marketing and salespeople and even CEOs from some of the smaller companies don't always get that same amount of attention, and the business doesn't always get that same amount of attention. So that's why I've really focused on interviewing business people. Now, my work will also draw on interviews conducted with all of these creative people as well, and so the creative people will be very well represented. It's just Mm -hmm. I feel there's less of a gap in the coverage when it comes to that. Pretty much it boils down to you're trying to focus on interviewing with people who have not been interviewed before, have not had a chance to tell their story, how they relate into the greater video game economy. Yes, there's some of that, but there's also interviewing people that have been interviewed before and asking them different questions on how everything relates to itself. I mean, I've interviewed Nolan Bushnell, for instance, who has been certainly interviewed dozens upon dozens of times and i certainly ask him questions he's been asked by other people before as well but i also wanted to focus in on aspects that aren't asked about relationships uh, that he had with people that aren't as well known you know where did you get your finance guy how did your finance guy work out for you how did you build your marketing operation you know things like that that may be a little dry when taken in isolation, but when added to the bigger picture, the bigger tapestry. It enriches the uh, story. It's sort of like how if I were just to eat cilantro or some other herb or spice, it tastes dry and bitter, but if I add it to my pizza sauce, it uh, really enhances the flavor and makes the entire thing kick. Exactly, and as I've kind of alluded to before, I do believe that that interplay of business and creativity is so important to driving the industry forward, and therefore, I feel there is a need to balance that understanding of the business side with that understanding of the creative side. And when I say understand it, I don't mean that we're going to business school and we're going to be spending all our time looking at balance sheets. It's definitely written from a layman's perspective. It's not about getting technical. It's just about representing all sides of the equation. We need to have a basic understanding of what's going on so that we can properly have put everything in context. Exactly. You mentioned before that you've had to really hunt down these people that you've wanted to interview and that it's really, really important that you try and find as many of these people as you can, especially the ones who have not been interviewed, frankly because they've been getting up in years. It's what you've communicated to me before. And in fact, even fairly recently, the first guy that you have ever interviewed has 
died, and if you hadn't interviewed, his story would be lost to us. Yes, that's true, though thankfully he has actually been, he had been interviewed by a couple other people as well, so I, I wasn't the only one to talk to him, but uh, yes, uh, Dave Morofsky Sr. was an employee for most of his professional life of the company Midway Manufacturing. Now, the Midway that we may know of today that just disintegrated a couple of years ago, the Midway that put out the Mortal Kombat games and uh, some of those other things, that shared the name Midway because they were the rights holder to that name. But the original company and that company are actually two different companies With hmm. when you go through all the mergers and acquisitions and spinoffs and all of that that gets very convoluted. But Midway Manufacturing started in 1958. It was started by two coin-op engineers, Hank Ross and Iggy Wolverton, both of whom are no longer with us. And mm -hmm. they were very talented and worked at a company called United Manufacturing that was in the process of falling apart, and so they decided to strike out on their own. This is something that would have been a lot more common even 20 years before. In the period that they decided to strike out was actually a period of time where the number of manufacturers in the industry was largely contracting rather than expanding, but they decided that if they kept their overhead very low, which they felt they could do because of their expertise in crafting this equipment, that they could create a niche for themselves, and they were able to, and they kind of concentrated on being on the cutting edge. They became kind of a boutique developer known for doing cutting-edge arcade cabinets, and this attracted the attention of Bally, which was one of the giants in the field. And so Bally actually purchased them in 1969. Then they became a subsidiary of Bally. And so they, they were actually in the pinball industry, if I understand you. Well, they didn't do pinball. They were in the coin-operated amusement industry, which pinball was obviously one of the most important games in that industry. But because there were already several large companies doing pinball by the time they were established, they deliberately decided to stay away from pinball. They concentrated on pitch-and-bat baseball games, target-shooting games. They did a popular shuffle alley for a few years, which is a kind of coin-operated mechanical, electromechanical bowling game. Really? It's called shuffle alley because it uses the same kind of puck as a shuffleboard court uses, but instead of pushing it with a stick, you're kind of hurling it down a miniature bowling lane in order to mm -hmm. not knock over pins, but it registers a hit on pins because it completes a circuit. I've actually played that game. The uh, You have a puck, it go, you slide down, you actually have pins that sort of are up above and are actually above the board. Yes. And where the uh, actual bowling alley is, there are these little metal triggers that let the puck slide right over it, and when those are depressed, it registers that pin as being hit, and it flips up. It's actually quite a lot of fun because you're just sort of playing around there, almost like if you were to play uh, shuffleboard except with your hands and you're throwing it down the lane trying to get it all the way through. Exactly. Hence the term shuffle alley because it's kind of a combination of the shuffleboard concept and the bowling concept. And these games were very popular, to digress slightly, very popular in the 50s and 60s because this was a period of time when pinball was actually facing a lot of restrictions, banned in a lot of major cities, and also had a real stigma of being a front for organized crime, which it was not, mm -hmm. but 
that stigma couldn't quite be shaken. And so bowling was seen as a more wholesome entertainment. And so bars and taverns that didn't want pinball machines because they thought they were fronting the mob were happy to take shuffle alleys. So Midway was one of the producers of shuffle alleys. They were not the biggest, but Mm -hmm. they were... They did that. They did the shooting games. They basically avoided pinball just because they felt that market was already being served. But they were actually bought out by Bally, which is known, at least by me, as a pinball manufacturer. That's true. Though the pinball games that you're thinking of, of Bally, were a little bit later in the 70s. Bally was huge in the 30s in pinball, and this was pre-flipper pinball, so this is different than the game that we have today. The more like Pachinko Machine one? Yeah, there's some similarities to Pachinko Machines. Certainly, Pachinko Machines and uh, 1930s pinball machines have a common ancestor in Bagatelle. So there is some of that. But yes, this idea of balls falling through nests of pins rather than using flippers and hitting bumpers and other kinds of targets. So Bally was really big in that in the 1930s. After World War II, they were really focusing on gambling-type machines uh, including pinball gambling machines. And so they really kind of fell by the wayside in pinball. They were well behind Gottlieb and Williams, which were the leaders in the post-war world in pinball, until the mid-'70s when they got heavily involved in licensing and in solid-state pinball. And then they became the number one pinball company for a few years. Though, again, that's hmm. that's a bit of a digression. But yeah. Bally was diversifying rapidly in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and they were integrating both horizontally and vertically. That is, they were buying companies that made games and coin-operated pieces in areas that they were weak, the horizontal integration, and they were also vertically integrating by buying up a lot of distributors and buying up a lot of operators so that they controlled kind of every step along the supply chain of coin-operated gambling and coin-operated amusements. And since Bally was weak in novelty games and Midway was very strong in novelty games, they purchased Midway to get into that segment of the coin-operated amusement market. And because Midway was kind of known as this technology company, and not a technology company in the way we think of today with Silicon Valley. We're still talking electromechanical stuff, but they were kind Mm -hmm. of one of the leaders technologically because of Hank Ross and Iggy Wolverton's expertise. They became the video game division of Bally when Bally decided that they wanted to invest in that market heavily. So this is why Midway is the company that put out Space Invaders in the United States. They're the company that put out Pac-Man in the United States. They're the company that put out Galaga in the United States. They didn't create these games. They were created in Japan, but they were the North American distributor. They also did create some games of their own that were very well received, such as Gorf and Spy Hunter and Tron. Oh, I love Spy Hunter. Yeah, definitely (laughs) a classic. And Dave Morofsky, he started at the company in 1959, the year after the company was created. As a young engineer, he rose to be in charge of production. He was the guy that was responsible for making sure that the factory was churning out the games quickly and efficiently and reliably. And then when Iggy Wolverton retired in 1979, Dave Morofsky became the president of Midway, at this point a subsidiary of Bally. And Mm -hmm. he led the company during the golden age of arcade games. So 
He was the guy. He wasn't in charge when Space Invaders came out. That was still Iggy, but uh, he's the guy that was in charge when Pac-Man came out, when Ms. Pac-Man came out. Galaga, Tron, Gorf, Spy Hunter, all of these classics. And Mm -hmm. then he left the company in 1985. Uh, Bally was changing at that point, largely because of the video game crash, the arcade industry crash. They were diversifying, moving away from arcade games, and so... Dave Morofsky wasn't interested in being at a company that wasn't interested in arcade games. That was his entire life. So he founded his own company, a company called Grand Products that mostly did contract work for other manufacturers. And then he was at that company for many years and then passed it along to his son, Dave Morofsky Jr. So Hmm. Dave Morofsky was the first person I ever interviewed. I'm not exactly sure. I can't really tell you why I chose him first. (laughs) Mm-hmm. He was just somebody that had been interviewed a little bit before, but hadn't been interviewed much and was president of a very important video game company. And his company, Grand Products, was still around. And even though he was retired, you know, his son, like I said, was still there. So I was able to contact him through his son. And Mm -hmm. it's certainly not the best interview I ever did. It was my very first one. So I was still very wet behind the ears, obviously, when it came to asking good questions and conducting a good interview but we talked for about an hour and a half and i got some behind the scenes stories about how the company licensed some of its products how the relationship was between midway and the parent company bally and how the relationship was with midway and some of the contract companies that created content for them like dave nutting associates and arcade engineering and just had a, a nice general talk about the company. Uh, this was back in uh, early 2009, I want to say. That sounds about right. I think that's when I remember you telling me. And he did, uh, sadly, just die earlier this year. He was a he was a cancer survivor, so he had many more years than than his family could have ever hoped, which was the good thing, but. He did uh, die in his his early 70s just earlier this year, and that's going to be something that happens more and more. The industry is still relatively young, and the other aspect of the industry is that not only is it still relatively young, 40 years, but most of the people that established the industry were young guys when they established it. I mean, this was really the beginning of the idea of the young, hotshot tech entrepreneur. I mean, Mm -hmm. someone like Nolan Bushnell was Steve Jobs before Steve Jobs in some ways. I mean, no analogy like that is ever going to be perfect. But this idea of being a young guy that really doesn't have any management experience, but has a dream to do a product that the big companies out there don't want to do, and goes out on his own, finds some startup money, either through bootstrapping or later on, you know, getting some venture capital at the outset and creating a a giant tech company around some hot idea. So the industry is 40 years old. The people that were starting the industry 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago, were largely in their mid 20s to early 30s. So these are people that are in their late 60s and early 70s today. So Mm -hmm. most of them are still alive and most of them are still out there, but we are starting to get to the point 
where we're going to start losing them and have already started losing some prominent individuals. Uh, Dave Morofsky being an example, more prominent. Uh, another example that uh, comes to mind is one of the people you hunted down actually is still alive, but is currently suffering from Alzheimer's. Yes, that's 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 true. I won't I won't mention names to to keep that private, but there was one person that had worked for several companies that that I had contacted and was hoping to get an interview, and it turned out that he had early onset Alzheimer's and so was not able to speak with me, which was very sad because he's someone that, as far as I know, has never been interviewed by a historian. Was he a person whose contributions were of major importance to the industry? No, they weren't, but he was a person that had spent most of his career within the industry working for several companies and so those kinds of stories are invaluable for putting together uh, the greater picture of, of the industry and how it developed. That is why we uh, it's really, really important to get these guys' stories recorded because there are people like him who just have not been interviewed or we don't know how, what the interactions were. Exactly. And, of course, there's always the caveat that oral history only takes you so far. Obviously, human memory is fallible, and you're asking people questions about stuff that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago. They're not going to have all the details, or they're going to think they have some details that are actually wrong, not because they're trying to, to distort history, but just because of the fallibility of human memory. Uh, you do also have people that do have an agenda, either consciously or subconsciously, where they want to remember events a certain way or they want history to remember them a certain way. And and sometimes these people aren't even necessarily telling deliberate falsehoods. Uh, sometimes mm. when we want to remember something a certain way strongly enough, then that becomes the memory in our own minds. So oral history is not the bedrock that my work is based on. The bedrock that my work is based on is documentation from the time, newspaper articles, magazine articles, trade publication articles, occasional legal documents, that kind of thing, because mm -hmm. those are less mutable, less subject to lapses in memory. But oral history is important because it does fill in the gaps. There's some stuff that never makes it into the official record, especially when it comes to interactions between people. It really brings in the human factor. Exactly. And so that's important. Also, questions of motivation. Again, after 40 years, people don't necessarily remember their own motivations anymore. But when somebody is giving a newspaper report on a new product, it's not going to get to the real what makes these people tick. Even profiles that do ask people, what was your inspiration for this? What was your inspiration for that? There's often a lot of marketing spin at the time because they're trying to sell a product, whereas if you ask them, you know, 20 or 30 years later, they may give you the straight dope. It's like, yeah, we told them that back then, but that was just for the marketing. That was just for the that was just for the press. This is this mm. is what we were really thinking, that kind of thing. So it, it is useful as a gap filler. And, you know, these are unique resources because corporate documents that don't get lost. I mean, obviously, a lot of stuff gets lost before anyone takes an interest in it. Corporate documents, as long as they're properly preserved, and newspaper articles, as long as they're properly preserved, are going to continue to be accessible 
for decades to come, hopefully. But these human resources, the people behind these great games and great companies, that's a resource that is finite and won't be with us forever. And so I do think it's important to start gathering these stories, and I've taken it upon myself to be one of the people that's doing this. I think that pretty much covers that. I know that when you interview people, you just have a microphone that you pretty much point at your cell phone, and then you're just talking to them pretty much on speakerphone in order to have the recordings. How do you go about just preparing generally for the interview? Do you write out a bunch of questions specifically for the person? Um, Do you do any special setup from an audio uh, standpoint apart from I'm just poking my uh, microphone at the phone and starting up Audacity. Yeah, pretty much the latter. It's, you know, these aren't official oral histories, something that, I mean, I do hope to someday donate the audio recordings that I've done to an institution that would be interested in having them just for posterity, but these are interviews that are being done just for my own edification. They're not set up as formal oral histories. So I'm not worried about getting the absolute best sound quality, the absolute best conditions. Obviously, it would be even better to be able to do it face-to-face for an oral history and, and record it with a, with a video recorder. So mm-hmm. I don't do anything special technically. I just want to make sure that I have a recording that is clear enough that I can understand it and refer back to it for my research. In terms of questions, I don't often do specific questions all written out in advance. I mean, there are certainly specific things I want to know sometimes, but I usually frame it more generally in terms of talking points, big picture topics that I want to get them engaged in and ask them questions about. And then if there's something that strikes my fancy, try to follow up on that and get more details. Sometimes I write out a lot of stuff in advance. Sometimes I write out very little in advance. I have a pretty good memory for this stuff, so oftentimes, as long as I skim over my research materials before I do the interview to kind of refresh and jog my memory, I don't need to have a lot written out to be able to do a pretty organized interview. But if it's a subject I'm a little less familiar with, or if it's a subject that has a lot deeper involvement in the industry and therefore there's some really complex issues around their role, then I do like to have more stuff written out to make sure that I don't forget to talk about something important. I remember one person, I'm sure you remember his name, actually complimented you on your breadth of knowledge about the industry. I've had a few people compliment me. Uh, Lewis Castle, who was the co-founder of Westwood Studios of Dune to Command and Conquer, Lion King, Blade Runner fame, thanked me at the end of our interview. We spoke for about two hours, thanked me for bringing such a knowledge to the conversation and asking such good questions. Uh, Dave Morofsky, who we talked about previously, complimented me on how how many people I seemed to know whenever whenever he was Whenever his memory was failing him for a name, I was usually able to do a pretty good job of of supplying the name of the person that he was thinking of. So I've definitely had people compliment me on how well researched I am on the topic. That's true. And 
I think they appreciate that. And I think that often comes out in the interviews that, you know, the more you know going in, the more receptive sometimes they are to to share. And the better quality an interview is that if you know, have a really good command of the subject matter, you can really dig in deep and sort of bring in all these various aspects to the interview in order to really focus in on some sort of subject or uh, help them remember things that happened 30, 40 years ago. That's true. And I don't want to take this concept too far. Most of the people I talk to, I talk to between one and a half and three hours. And Mm -hmm. there's often a lot of material to cover in that one and a half to three hours. And, you know, it's not a formal oral history interview that is trying to get into every nook nook and cranny. So I'm not always able to do more than than scratch the surface in a lot of areas, especially since memories being what they are after a few years, they don't necessarily have the great details. But it's always another piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they say something that I've never considered before. Sometimes they say something that I have considered before, but it's nice to have them confirm it. Sometimes... They say something that seems innocent, but then you talk to another guy and they say something very similar and you talk to another guy and they say something bigger, very similar. And so then a big picture kind of emerges out of the individual stories. So that kind of thing is very useful. I wouldn't say that all of the interviews go into super in-depth detail, but I think that it is fair to say that with every subject, I do a very good job of pulling out the big picture stories about the companies they worked for and the people they worked for and how this all came together to uh, create this wonderful industry. You've done 50 interviews so far. What would you say would be the most interesting interview that you were able to do, the, the most interesting person or really the interesting story or both? Well, I think in general the most interesting interviews are the interviews with people that haven't really been interviewed before. I wouldn't say that I've discovered so far anything particularly shocking or earth-shattering or something that completely changes our understanding of some event or another. It's not really about that so much. But learning how some of these people contributed to the industry that we really had no knowledge of before or learning a new spin on what they did is certainly fascinating. I think one of the most interesting interviews I had the pleasure to conduct back in 2009 was an interview with Bruce Davis. Bruce Davis, for those that don't know, was the CEO of Activision from 1987 until 1991. This was a very tough period for... Activision, and a somewhat tough period for the computer game industry generally, just because it was a period of great upheaval and transition. You had a few different things going on, just to touch on briefly. You had the rise of the NES, the revival of the console market, pushing game players back onto consoles and away from home computers a little bit. You kind of had the first generation of popular home computers like the Commodore 64 were aging and reaching the end of their lifespan But the next generation of home computers like the Atari ST and the Commodore Amiga never achieved the same penetration in the United States, solely talking about the United States now, not the European market, Mm -hmm. so that the computer game companies were kind of at a crossroads, kind of trying to figure out where the market was going. Of course, technology is always improving. 
So you had a situation where advanced graphics and sound multimedia was starting to come in and certain genres like, say, text adventures were beginning to be left behind. And so it was a difficult period generally, and it was a difficult period specifically for Activision because Activision had suffered greatly during the video game crash in 1983-84 and was still in the process of trying to recover as a computer game publisher and put a quarter after quarter of losses behind it. So Bruce Davis came in at a very challenging time, and he was brought in under less than ideal circumstances. Basically, the founding CEO of the company, Jim Levy, who had founded the company with four game creators, game programmers from Atari, was asked to resign by the board because the company had been losing money for so many years. And it was a publicly traded company at this point, and publicly traded companies just unfortunately can't lose money for too long before somebody demands a change be made because you do have a fiduciary duty to shareholders to return value and quarter after quarter of losses doesn't return value now certainly the problems activision was having were not jim levy's fault the problems were because of larger issues with the video game marketplace but one of the things about being the ceo is when times are tough you're the person that has to fall on the sword. Exactly. So Bruce Davis came in at a very challenging time, and he was a lawyer. He wasn't a game creator. He wasn't an engineer. He wasn't a marketing person coming out of another industry like uh, like the record industry or the movie industry or something. He was a lawyer, and he very much was a person who was seen by creative people as more of a suit in that sense. And he had the challenge of returning Activision to profitability, growing the company in the face of a changing market where no one was quite sure where it was going, and integrating several companies that had just been recently purchased under the Levy regime in an effort to diversify the product line, most notably Infocom, the celebrated creator of text adventures. So Bruce Davis has been pretty roundly vilified in the gaming press because, long story short, uh, the company was profitable for a brief period of time under him, but it started to hit problems because he expanded the company into business software, changed the name of the company from Activision to Mediagenic, to reflect the larger focus of the company. The company still published its computer games under the name Activision. It's just that the parent company was now not Activision, it was Mediagenic. And got into some spats with some of the creative people when it came to cost controls and cost cutting, which was kind of messy, and then had a very tumultuous relationship with Infocom, which was a very beloved company in certain circles, but it was a company that had failed to transition appropriately to the modern technologies, particularly graphics. So because the gaming press is always going to be more sympathetic towards the game creators, well, I shouldn't say always, you don't want to use absolutes, but the gaming press tends to be more sympathetic towards game creators. And because Bruce Davis did admittedly make several serious missteps that ended with the company falling into bankruptcy, 
there's been a tendency to focus entirely on the bad and not round it out with any mitigating factors. Like the fact that he was pretty much trying to keep a company afloat in the middle of pretty much an entire collapse of an industry. Well, yes, I mean, the collapse was over at this point, but trying to recover from the collapse and and build the company in what I would call a transitional period. It, It wasn't a collapse period, but it was very much a transitional period. We're trying trying to shepherd it and bring it more into profitability, really. Exactly. And there's no doubt he made some mistakes. But you also have to take into account some of the other things going on at the time. First of all, we tend to focus more on Mediagenic's failure in business, I think, because the company did go bankrupt and because the company changed its name. It makes it a convenient target. I mean, Mediagenic... It just doesn't sound very game company-ish to us today. I mean, I don't really know how it was received at the time. Trade publications don't just tend to report those facts and don't tend to give opinions on them. So no one was Mm. writing big op-ed pieces about whether the name Mediagenic was a good idea or not. Today, with the internet and the proliferation of websites, you would get more of that kind of opinion piece back than you didn't. So I can't really say how the name was greeted back then, but we certainly don't look kindly on that name today. And plus then, you know, Bobby Kotick, who brought the company out of bankruptcy, well, actually, I should say he took the company into bankruptcy and then took it back out of bankruptcy. He had a vested interest in differentiating the new Activision, his Activision, from the old Activision, Mediagenic. And so the way he did that is, well, Activision went into all of these other product categories that they had no business being in and wasn't that stupid of them. And Activision has always been a game company and Activision should be a game company. And I don't know what they were thinking because he has to explain why his Activision is going to do better than the old Activision. I mean, that's there's nothing shady about that. That's just that's standard operating procedure. It's what you have to do as a CEO. Exactly. So I think people tend to forget that Activision was not the only game company that went into business software, productivity software. Electronic Arts tried to get into that category very strongly and actually had some pretty serious failures in that area, as well as some serious successes. What did they make? Well, in 1984, they actually bought a company that made a uh, personal organizer suite of software called Get Organized. And they put a lot of muscle behind that, and it just went over like a lead balloon. And Mm. they also explored getting into word processors and some other concepts as well, though I'm not sure they actually ever published anything there, but they were looking into the possibility. And then, of course, their great success was Deluxe Paint. They created the graphics program Deluxe Paint, which was the gold standard in graphic programs throughout the kind of pixel era, the 16-bit era on the Amiga and the PCs of the time and whatnot. It was the Adobe of the modern era. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Electronic Arts also went into business and productivity software and even had failures in that area. But because Electronic Arts continued to be a successful game company, people tend to forget that. And then, of course, Broderbund, the game company, became more of a productivity company than it was a video game company with, (laughs) uh, with Print Shop, of course, being their... Uh, most important product 
So this was the trend at the time. You can't really criticize Bruce Davis for doing the same thing that all of his competitors were doing. I mean, that's just nonsense, in my opinion. Now, where he did screw up, because again, you do need to balance the good with the bad, and there was bad, is he did decide that the company should focus on niche computer products. He figured that, probably correctly, that there was already a lot of software for PC, Macintosh, Amiga, those kind of platforms. And so he decided they would serve more specialty markets, uh, particularly the Apple II GS, which was the last generation of Apple II computer that didn't do well in the marketplace and was quickly forgotten, and HyperCard, which was a product to enhance the Macintosh. And it's actually very interesting. For the HyperCard, they actually made a slide program that was essentially PowerPoint before PowerPoint. Hmm. And so they were kind of on point with their ideas of what kind of software would go over well in the market. Their slideshow idea was really quite ahead of its time. The problem was they did it for a add-in device, the HyperCard, that never achieved any kind of market penetration. So because they were making all of their products for HyperCard and Apple IIGS, that didn't work. <laughs> it just, right. you know, it, it failed in the marketplace. And that was part of the reason why their sales were really affected. They did do very well in the NES market because they did get the company back into consoles. Obviously, Activision had started as a console company making games for the Atari 2600. Then they transitioned after the crash into being a fully computer game maker, and they did not initially get into the NES market when the NES came back because they were very burned by the first console market, obviously, and had no way of knowing whether Nintendo would actually stick around. But Bruce Davis did lead them into the console market, which was a good idea, and they had some good success there financially. Now, they did very much practice a singles and doubles philosophy of product, which means that they were not trying to create the innovative games. They were not trying to create the advanced games. They were not trying to create the brilliant games. They created games that were serviceable, that did an okay job, but were not groundbreaking and, and made them a little bit of money, but didn't sell millions of copies. So mm. you can argue that Bruce Davis betrayed the creative vision of the original Activision because the original Activision was built around creating groundbreaking products because Activision was founded by four of the greatest Atari 2600 programmers, Alan Miller, Bob Whitehead, Larry Kaplan, and David Crane. So it had always had a reputation as being innovative and cutting edge in game products, and they that translated over to their work in computer games as well. They did a game called Little Computer People that was essentially The Sims before The Sims, where you had a dollhouse and you had a little man living in your dollhouse, and he would go about his daily business, and you could interact with him and do stuff with him. Everything had been done before, hadn't it? Exactly. And they did a game called Portal that was hypertext before hypertext, because again, we're talking 1986 here. Uh, it was a kind of adventure game, though it really wasn't much of a game. It was more of an interactive novel where you were trying to discover what happened to this civilization, and so you have access to all their files, and you could click through all the files. So you click on this one file and it has this information, and then you can click on something in there to get to the next file. Hypertext before hypertext. Hmm. And this stuff was incredibly groundbreaking material, but 
a lot of it didn't sell very well. Now, their 2600 games sold very well. At that point, they were very much cutting edge in technology and cutting edge in commercial success as well. The computer games didn't sell as well because they missed the market a little bit by doing games that were interesting ideas but were so different from what everyone else was doing that there really wasn't a market for it. They deliberately passed on genres like RPGs and military simulations, which is where kind of the big money was in the computer game market at the time. So this kind of gets back to my idea about the the tension between creative and business, whereas they were a little too much on the creative side there. And then Bruce Davis maybe took them a little too much to the commodity side and gave them some games that were financially successful, but gave them product that wasn't influential. So there's a tendency to criticize what Activision became during that time period for the lack of creativity. And some of that can certainly be laid at Bruce Davis's feet. And I don't think that's an invalid criticism to make. I think you do have to counter it with the fact that the company did return to profitability under him as well, which was a significant achievement and one he deserves a little credit for. But the real thing that killed the company was even completely out of his control, which was a longstanding patent lawsuit that started before he was even CEO of the company. And that was kind of the, or the judgment was rendered before he was CEO of the company. And so that was kind of the final nail that killed the company. He also had a very rocky relationship with Infocom. And again, he definitely deserves some of the blame for not understanding the unique talent and the unique ideas that Infocom could bring to the larger Activision company. But on the other hand, Infocom was already in serious distress before Activision ever bought them. And a lot of the problems at the company were because the company itself had failed to adapt to the graphical era and now was trying to play catch up and it was just too late. So again, it's not about exonerating Bruce Davis and saying that he was a brilliant executive or anything, but it's about bringing that balance. When you interviewed Bruce Davis, how much of this stuff actually came out that made it a particularly interesting interview? Well, you know, when I first contacted Bruce, he was a little hesitant to talk, I think just because there had been so much vilification in the past in the gaming press. But Once I gave him kind of a sample of my work, showed him kind of the angle I was taking with Activision, he thought it was a very balanced approach and uh, was willing to talk to me. And I found that he was very willing to own up to mistakes that he made, Mm -hmm. was very willing to discuss about the successes that he had with the company as well, and was just eager to talk to somebody that was taking a more balanced approach. And it's not that I necessarily, I definitely learned some things from him. I mean, I learned some of the ins and outs of this patent lawsuit and why it killed the company when it didn't necessarily have to, Mm -hmm. basically because the company that was suing them was out for blood and was refusing any kind of reasonable settlement. And I definitely learned some things about the interactions between the company and Infocom. I learned some stuff about what his approach to the console market was. So I I definitely learned some things I didn't know before. But it was also just about humanizing him and kind of understanding, here's the challenges he faced. Here's the decisions he decided to make to face those challenges. Here's the ones that worked. Here's the ones that didn't work. And kind of exploring the, the whys and the wherefores of what worked and what didn't. And I think that's a much better way to approach it than just saying, and then Bruce Davis took over the company, 
forced them to make business products, changed the name of the company, and then it went into bankruptcy. Because that just, that misses a lot of the nuance. And tell, forgets a lot of the story, too. Exactly. And so I think it's important to have interviews like that. And as far as I know, I'm the only person that's ever interviewed him. Uh, someone else may interview him someday. I don't know. But for the moment, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that's interviewed him. Uh, there are a few people like that. Uh, Ed Miller, who was the president of Taito America in the 70s and therefore was the man responsible for bringing space invaders to North America, is another person that I had a nice interview with. I don't think has been interviewed before. Uh, from a historical perspective, I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. these people were interviewed when they were heads of these companies to give their opinions on this and that. It's not like they've never talked to anyone, but I'm just talking about right. a historical perspective. And uh, Jim Skoroposky, who was the co-founder of Acclaim with Greg Fishbach, uh, who I also interviewed, but he's been interviewed by other people, is another person I talked to. Acclaim was at one time one of the largest third-party developers of console games, so very important company. And so I've talked to a lot of these kinds of people that haven't been interviewed before just to, you know, get a different spin on the story. And again, you know, it's not about finding some earth-shattering revelation or digging some long hidden skeleton out of the closet. It's just the more voices you have, the better able you are to craft uh, a big picture. And I think that some of the previous histories, even though many of them are very well written, very excellently done, don't always get all sides of some of these stories again partially just because they don't have the time because they're smaller volumes they're single volume histories that's part of the reasons i want to do a three volume history is you can dig in with a little more depth i know you were able to find a lot of these people by uh, taking advantage of linkedin and then how a lot of corporate entities structure their email addresses for all the people who are in the email and actually cold calling people sending out emails finding them on LinkedIn and sending them messages. Is that primarily how you've found them? That's certainly how I found a lot of them. LinkedIn is an incredible resource for locating these people. And that's probably where I've gotten the vast majority of my interviews. Uh, some of them are active in social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And that's another way that you can find contact information. And some of them have personal websites, blogs, that kind of thing. And so you can find them that way. But Certainly, it would be a lot harder uh, if we weren't in the uh, internet era here to find a lot of these people. And I find that the vast majority of the people I contact are willing to talk. I mean, you, there are a few you just never hear back from. Sometimes your message may not even get to them. Uh, one or two that say, thanks, but no thanks. But most people are actually very willing to talk. I think, you know, I try to structure my pitches, my pitch emails in such a way that it shows that I have a lot of knowledge about who they are and what they did. And I think that that helps make people be more responsive. But these people are genuinely proud of the work that they've done in the industry. Most of them say that working in the video game industry is the best job they ever had. Some of them are lifers, but those that have worked in many different industries, most of them say working in video games is the best job they've ever had. Really? And so they like to share the stories and they... They like to know that someone is taking all of this information down. When I spoke to Tom Kalinske, who mm. was the president of Sega of America during most of the uh, Sega Genesis period. Now, he's someone that's been interviewed before. I'm certainly not the first one to interview him. But when we were done talking, he thanked me for taking an interest and for doing this because 
he came out of the toy industry. Mm-hmm. He was the president of Mattel before he was involved with Sega. And, you know, what he said is that in the toy industry, no one really bothered to talk to the pioneers. No one bothered to talk to the people that founded these companies, the people that built the first classic toys. No one was talking to the creator of Mr. Potato Head about what he was thinking when he created Mr. Potato Head. Barbie's an ex- an exception because the handlers became famous because Barbie was so famous, and so they gave interviews. So you have some information from founders, but a lot of these guys no one ever talked to. And, uh, you know, Tom said he thinks it's great that me and the many other people like me are gathering these stories from the founders of the video game industry because... Otherwise, they'd be lost. Now, what I know from when you initially started doing the whole interview process, you were really nervous. You were almost had cold feet in a few cases where, who are you to contact these people? These guys are executives of, or former executives of major companies, and you're just this guy doing research. And how would you, you, would you agree with the assessment that I think that you really grown as a person over time and gotten a lot better at this. You certainly seem to have said that earlier where between your first interview and some of your more later interviews where you have gotten better at the whole process, gotten a lot more confident in the entire process in doing interviews and putting yourself out there. Oh, absolutely. That's a fair assessment. I mean, I've just been uh, blown away really by how welcoming these people have been, how willing these people have been to talk, and how warm they've been and how candid they've been. It's uh, it's a very close-knit industry. You know, there's a very small amount of companies overall, and the same people kind of end up being at all the same companies. So there's a lot of interconnectedness. And it really seems like it's an industry that has a lot of very good, very warm, very genuine people in it on both the creative side and on the business side. And that's definitely helped immensely in making me feel more comfortable contacting people and putting myself out there and asking these people uh, all of these questions. And, you know, as we said before, I think they appreciate my preparedness. And we usually end up having a, a pretty nice dialogue in most cases, I think. And I think that's pretty good. Next time, we want to get into defining what the video game industry is and some of the cycles. Exactly. Really, the first two podcasts we did are really about introducing us and introducing the concept and explaining where a lot of this information is coming from. The goal, I think, of the podcast going forward is to take some areas of video game history that are either less well-known or areas where the facts have become confused over time and just kind of examine these areas and hopefully provide a greater understanding of what happened in these instances. And so as we go forward, the podcast will really be focused on events rather than on me and what I'm doing in terms of research and that kind of thing. Right, so we can always uh, throw those in as things develop, like, say, whenever you finally get the first volume done. Yes, whenever that will be. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com 
Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.